0: Well, good morning, everyone. I have a question for you. What were you doing in 1976? It's a long time ago. Some of you remember, others of you didn't exist. Uh, I personally was negative 17, Um, so there's that. But a lot has happened since then. And If you didn't know, that was the year that a group of high school students as high school students often do, decided to start a band. That band eventually made it big, but that was a long time ago. What if I told you that since September of this year, 2023, those same dinosaurs from 1976 sold out at a venue of over 17,000 seats, not just once, but in the same city 30 shows since September. They've had shows just this past weekend, and they're still going. That's over half a million people going to see this high school band from ages ago. The band is U2, so in case you were curious. And since September, they have been in a residency contract in Las Vegas, but people aren't actually even going to see you too. Really, all these people are flocking to Las Vegas because they have to see the venue. So here's the picture. The venue's called The Sphere. Um, And if you haven't heard, um, come back to the interior here. Uh, As the name alludes, it's just this giant ball. And on the inside, these screens 160,000 square feet of not 4K, not 8K, 16K screen just surrounds you. And it just is this overwhelming sensory experience. You and, of course, 17,000 of your closest friends. But you won't see any speakers anywhere either because there's this new revolutionary audio technology. Um, I don't fully understand. It's like beam technology. Somehow they're beaming custom audio to every single seat. And I don't know how that works, but you don't see the audio. It's like behind the screen somewhere. It's fascinating and it's new and everybody's got to go see it. People are traveling from all over the world to see it. And that's just the inside. So now let's go to the outside. The outside also has a bunch of fully programmable LEDs. The whole building is 360 feet tall, and you'll often find it as a smiley face, a basketball, an eyeball, the moon. It's a sight to see. It's quickly becoming the next iconic landmark in Las Vegas. It's been causing a little bit of debate because it's causing a lot of traffic issues. People are just like stopping in the middle of the road to see this thing, to get a selfie with it, whatever they're doing. It's causing issues because it's a sight to see. It's kind of the, uh, a modern human mosquito lamp, essentially. People are just going, bzz, bzz, uh, I have to go see this thing. If you want to rent it, you can rent it for the day to advertise, uh, but that'll cost you $450,000 for the day. So it's a, it's a big deal. Needless to say, this thing is huge, both in size and magnetic effect that it has in the world right now. People are flocking to see it. And it's hard for us to comprehend The magnitude of what's happening here, because we live in Bowling Green. (laughs) And I don't know if you remember this, but a while back, we got a Culver's, and you couldn't get to Walmart because everybody was so excited to get a hamburger. But the sphere is different. It's a big deal. It's new. It has this almost gravitational pull. It's a spectacle, and it's drawing crowds. And in the first century, in the places where Jesus lived and where he ministered, everywhere he went, there were crowds. Jesus' life and ministry was marked by crowds. He had compassion on the crowds. He heals the crowds. He feeds the 5,000. In the book of Luke, people are trampling on each other, causing traffic issues as they try to get close to Jesus. And ultimately, it's the crowds who yell, crucify him. And Jesus was kind of a big deal. I don't know if you know that. His presence had, like this sphere, this gravitational force to it. And if the Las Vegas sphere is any indication, is that we are and always have been hardwired to be drawn to something bigger than ourselves, hardwired to flock, to worship something. But in a world of Las Vegas spheres, There's always a new thing. This is new right now, but it'll be old news eventually. And there'll be something else. And when it comes to the Christmas story, often we're so familiar with it that we find ourselves tuning out because it's not new anymore. And we lose the gravitational, this weight that the story holds. It holds a weight. And because of our familiarity, we often lose it. So today, what we're going to try to do is to renew that sense of awe and that weight of what this story is. And, and we're going to do that by taking a look at what some of the chara- how some of the characters reacted when it was brand new to them. And hopefully what we'll find is we'll find ourselves leaning in a little closer, not just tuning it out as, yeah, I know the story, and maybe worshiping the king in these final days before Christmas. So read with me. We're going to go to Matthew chapter 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem and Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi came from the east to Jerusalem, and they asked, where's the one who's been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time when they saw that the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go, search carefully for the child, and as soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go And worship him. After they heard the king, they went on their way, and the star that they'd seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, They returned to their country by another route. So that's the story. Pretty familiar. So let's go through some of the characters. Who are the Magi? Who are the Magi? These Magi, or commonly called wise men, were like royal counselors, sometimes called kings. We don't really know anything about their character. We don't even know the exact place that they came from. But regardless, they were highly respected as these mythical astrology gurus and highly intelligent astronomy geniuses, which in that day were essentially the same thing. And they were stargazers. They were stargazers from far away, and they come to worship Jesus. We don't really know how many there were. Traditionally, we say three because there were the three gifts, gold, frankincense, myrrh, And then the text began introducing the Magi, saying after Jesus had been born, after Jesus had been born, and that they came from a foreign country in the east. So likely, they arrived a number of days, not at the nativity, at the night, but a number of days after. If you've heard of the 12 days of Christmas, this is traditionally The number of days celebrated and allotted for their travels. 12 days after Christmas, the Magi arrive. We don't know, scholars don't know exactly how many days, but traditionally, there's a history of celebrating the travel of the Magi. It took several days. Most scholars would agree that it took a number of days. It wasn't just an afternoon walk. So while your grandmother's nativity may not have been technically accurate here, Uh, having the Magi standing next to all the things at the same moment. The biblical author Matthew ties these stories together because the Bible isn't actually security camera footage. It's not security camera footage. It's a unified story, and Matthew intentionally ties these stories together because there's meaning between the two. When Matthew tells us—this is fun, this is bonus— when Matthew tells us that they're from the East— I'd never considered this before. That's significant, the fact that they're from the East, because historically speaking, in the story of Israel, people coming from the East were not coming for good reasons. The East was not a good place. This is where enemies of Israel are, where they came and they would plunder. But instead of coming to plunder Israel, the Magi, the East, is coming to worship Jesus, and it's a sign. It's a sign That God is fulfilling his promise, and he is drawing the whole world to himself, even the enemies of Israel. And Matthew then will end his book with the resurrected Jesus saying the words, now go, make disciples of all nations, the whole world. And so Matthew bookends his whole gospel with the East coming to worship, the world is coming to worship, and now we are to go and tell the world. That's bonus, and I've got to apologize because we're about 11 minutes in now, and I haven't referenced my adorable two-year-old Emmett. <laughs> I know some of you were really on the edge of your seat wondering where's Emmett gonna fit into all this. There he is, Here he. Is. this is just not fair. I mean, he is too cute. Um, so here's our, our two-year-old. Uh, this year, this part of the story, The the magi, specifically the star in the sky that the magi are following. This is the part of the story that Emmett has like grasped onto. He's two, and he's now starting to understand and comprehend bits of the Christmas story. And why do we do what we do? And why is there a star on the tree? Oh, because God put a star in the sky. And it's so fun as as a parent to get to watch his little brain start to click and go, oh, and it's just I enjoy it. It's very fun. Recently we put a present under the tree. And he knows we don't open the present until Jesus' birthday. Because that's what you do at birthdays. You open presents. And every single day, he wakes up. Is it Jesus' birthday? No, it's not Jesus' birthday. Sometimes multiple times a day. Is it Jesus' birthday now? No, (laughs) we have to wait. So advent calendars very much help with that. But it's so fun to watch him start to comprehend these little bits of the Christmas story. Again, why do we do presents? In his mind, yeah, birthdays, we have presents. That makes sense. Why is there a star on the tree? Because God put a star in the sky, and he'll point it out. Literally just yesterday, we were in the car, and we stopped at a stoplight, and on a billboard, there was like a a nativity scene, and there was a star. And he said, Mama, Dada, there's the star. God put the star in the sky. And it's like, oh, it's so cute. But it's actually begun to like reawaken my own personal wonder of this story. God put a star in the sky. That's amazing. He has command over the stars in the sky. And while I'm not a scientist, I don't know exactly how all that works, and nobody really knows either. And we may have a literal astronomer in our, <laughs> astronomer in our congregation who would correct me. But literally, the heavens, the sky declared the glory of God that day. And it's so cool. There are several theories about how, how does that work. How, I don't know if you remember in 2020, um, a lot went on that year, but one of the things, in 2020, uh, there was this thing where a couple planets got really close together, and it was called the Great Conjuncture. And two planets were so close together that it looked like a really bright star in the sky. And that got scientists thinking, well, has that ever happened before? And they've got enough accurate data and software where they sort of rewound the clock of time and found that, sure enough, around the time of Jesus' birth, there was another alignment of stars like that, that it's possible that that's what the magi were looking at. That's what they saw. It's just so cool. Again, we don't know for sure. That's not the point. But it's miraculous that God would embed meaning into the motion of the stars. And that science can go, yeah, that could have happened. That might have actually happened. The Magi saw that anomaly and then they had to go see. How did they know what they were seeing? I don't know. It's still a mystery, but it's so cool. And then we see them interact with another character, King Herod. And King Herod is clearly not super happy about the idea of the newborn king. He's threatened. Um, He says to the, the Magi, go, Go ahead, go find him, and then come back once you've found him, and that way I can worship him too. And we're meant meant as the reader to go, I don't think he really wants to worship Jesus very much. And then your suspicions are confirmed whenever he says, awesome. We're furious, and he gives orders to mass murder all the boy children in the area under the age of two. He had evil intent. Historically, this Herod was deceptively grasping for power right from the start of his, of his reign. When uh, there was a civil war in Rome a little before this, Herod clearly chose sides on like, which side of the war he was going to be on. And then when the war was over, somehow deceived the victor into saying, yeah, I was with you the whole time. I don't know how that worked, but it worked and he was placed into his position that we find him here in this story. And then... From that point forward, Herod consistently, historically, was fearful of conspiracy. He executed his wife, three of his sons, another wife, his mother-in-law, and all, every single instance. Why? They were suspected of conspiracy. So he was always on edge, always ready to just eliminate any threat along the way. As a ruler, he had a violent track record, so his desire to kill Jesus, this supposed newborn king, it fits perfectly into his track record. Herod only knew how to secure his power through deception and death. But while Herod is clearly the bad guy here, you could almost argue that he gets it to agree that we often don't. We know the story. We've heard it before. It's familiar to us. But when it's brand-new news to him, he responds you can almost see him lean in. These astronomers are here to see who? A new ruler. That's a big deal. And while Herod is grasping for human power, his response is perhaps instructive for us. This is a big deal. This is heavy. There is a new king in town. A literal king of this area directs armies to mass murder children in order to kill a single baby. That's a big deal. Eastern astrologists are traveling for days to pay their respects to a foreign king. That's a big deal. Oh, and by the way, they only notice because the stars in the sky literally aligned in such a way to become a celestial spotlight for Jesus. What? That's a big deal. And now just for a second, I'm gonna take us back to middle school science class. I know it's not typically a time we like to go back to, but go with me, turn in your textbooks, and we're going to review Einstein's theory of general relativity, ooh, as it pertains to gravity. So check this out. This is very cool to me. This is always fascinating to me. Imagine a bed sheet. Imagine I have a bed sheet up here, all four corners are pulled really tight. So it's a it's a tight, flat bedsheet. And then I take a basketball and I place that right in the middle of the bedsheet. What happens to the bed sheet? There's a little bit of a dip, right? You can see this in your mind. Okay, take that off. How about a marble? Let's put a marble on that bedsheet. You put it on. It's a very small dent, a little dent, but it still has a dent, right? Imagine they're both on the bedsheet together. Basketball in the middle, there's a dip. I put the marble also on the bedsheet. Now what happens to the marble? Right where the basketball is, right? It follows the deeper dip that's going on. It is attracted to the bigger thing in the bedsheet. If I even like rolled it a little bit, you would almost see this, like, orbital effect. If I rolled the marble, it would spiral its way around the basketball until, ultimately, it finds it. This is a general concept of Einstein's theory of relativity. The magi react. They look up in the skies, in the heavens. They feel small, and they go... So that they can see the bigger thing that's happening in the world around them. King Herod reacts. He feels small, but he's threatened, and so he tries to make himself look big, and he has a big reaction because there's a bigger thing that just showed up in the bedsheet. In the Christmas story, the glory of the Lord, the magnificence, the loveliness, the perfection The grandeur, the weight of Jesus is put on display in a manger, and it bends the fabric of reality, literally. Glory is a Bible word that we don't use all the time in our regular language, but this is glory. This is a picture of glory. Literally in Hebrew, it means heavy. It means heavy. And we say this in our everyday language. This is the biblical theme of glory. We say this in our language. We say, someone shares significant news. We go, whew, that's heavy. People can have a reputation, a weight. You hear of people throwing their weight around. The reputation is heavy. So it's in our modern context. And then we, as people, can respond to people's weight as well. We can honor people's heaviness, their weight, by the way we act, by the way we, we listen, our body language, our actions, we can dishonor people, we can ignore their weight and disobey or ignore. I like this description from Kevin DeYoung. He says, to glorify God is to magnify the greatness of his character, but not like a microscope magnifies by making small things look large but as a telescope magnifies by giving us just a glimpse of things that are unimaginably big. We have the opportunity to glorify God as well. The Magi and the King, King Herod, both respond to the weight of the birth of Jesus. They respond to the bigger thing that showed up in the world. And maybe the question for us today is simply, How are we responding? Because they respond differently, but they both respond, and we all have a response to make. How are we responding? I can tell you that we are responding in some way. Even the modern Christmas holiday, the season still carries weight. The season of Christmas still carries weight on some level. According to the National Retail Federation, winter holiday sales have represented, on average, about 20% of the total revenue of the whole year, right now, in the Christmas season. That's a lot. That's a big weight. We feel this in our pocketbooks, as well. Um, About a third of Americans take on debt to pay for holiday spending. Maybe not a great idea, but it shows you how much is going on in this season. Maybe you feel it with travel. For many of us, Christmas is the one time of year that we see that that extended family, that one family member, that cousin. It's a big deal if you miss, right? According to AAA, more than 115 million people in the U.S. are expected to travel at least 50 miles this year for Christmas, which is the second highest number they've ever predicted. Why? Why? Because as much of a stress as it can be to travel or to prepare, it's a big deal. Christmas still holds that weight, even in our modern culture. But does our response to the season, the way we respond in our hearts, does it simply reflect the weight of the stress of the season, sort of like Herod? Or will we respond with worship, like the Magi? or literally any of the other snippets of the Christmas story. You can look at all of them, and you can see the response of people and how they choose to glorify God or not. Even the story of the shepherds. The shepherds point to the weight of Jesus' arrival. The angels show up, which first of all, woe. And then what are, what are the first words they say? Glory to God in the highest. So the shepherds are drawn to the manger. They go, they see, and they go away. And the scripture says they go away doing what? Glorifying and praising God. It's all over the story, and it's all over scripture. The whole Christmas story is saturated with this worship. Mary treasures these things in her heart. The planets align to point to the Prince of Peace. The Magi travel for days, for days upon days to honor the King of Kings. Even Herod responds to the weight of this news. Christmas, Christmas is our annual invitation to respond to the glory of our Savior. Christmas is our invitation to respond to the glory of our Savior, to respond to the weight of the reality that God came to rescue us from our own choices to separate ourselves from him, from our active disobedience, to choose our own way. And yet he comes, and he bends the fabric of reality so that we may be drawn close to him Once again, he becomes God with us so that we could be with God forever. What Herod got right was that there was a threat to his throne, a threat to his control. What he got wrong was that his weight could even compare to the arrival of heaven on earth. He chose to resist. But Jesus is the heaviest thing in the universe. The marble on the bedsheet will eventually make its way to the basketball. Jesus is the basketball. Jesus is the L.A. sphere. Jesus is the heaviest thing in the universe. And Scripture says in Philippians, All created beings... All created beings in heaven and on earth, even those long ago dead and buried, will bow and worship before this Jesus Christ and call out in praise that he is the master of all to the glorious honor of God the Father. And we can resist. We have that choice. We can resist or we can resign. We can bow our knee. We can choose to worship. We have that choice and even for the Magi who made that choice to worship. It took them several days. It was a journey. It's a journey to resign yourself to the Lord. It took the Magi several days to ultimately found their knees bowed in worship. You have seven. Next week is Christmas. And then it's over. January will come. The wonder of Christmas will be gone, and the humdrum, the ho-hum of January will just sweep us away. Let's not miss it. And only you will know. Only you will know in your heart if when you see the star on a tree, if that reminds you that God bends the stars in the sky to show you I'm here only you will know if the presence that you exchange will remind you and fill your heart with gratitude for the gift of Jesus for you. Or if while everybody's on the floor bending underneath the tree to find the presence, if you're reminded in your heart to bend your knee in worship, maybe you're the one literally bending to get the presence. Maybe there's a, just a quick second where you're like, wow, my knee's on the ground for Jesus. It's simple, but only you will know if these little moments happen. You have seven days, how will you respond? I don't know how you will choose to respond, but what I do know is that we are hardwired to worship. That Jesus is the king of kings. He's the alpha, the omega, and the heaviest thing in the universe. And this is our week. These are the final days before Christmas to respond to the invitation of the season, to recapture that sense of wonder to glorify God in our hearts and with our lives. Amen? Would you pray with me? Lord, I confess, um, it's hard for me to find these moments, to find myself not just swept up by the season, but to find myself seated and worshipful. I long to find my knee to the ground, whether physically or in my heart. I long to respond in worship. I I pray that you would speak loudly to us as a community this week. Holy Spirit, speak loudly to our hearts and remind us of the weight of the season, the greatness of the news that you've come. And would you find us willingly coming to you, not resisting, but willingly coming to the throne not because your arms are crossed and waiting, but because your arms are wide open. Thank you for coming to be with us so that we can be with you forever. In Jesus' name, amen.